The True Tone Lounge podcast features audio-only versions of our video interviews. To view those, please visit truetonelounge.com or our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash truetonefx. Hi, I'm Zach Childs, and welcome to the True Tone Lounge. Today, our guest is J.D. Simo. Welcome. Uh, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me, Zach. Yeah. So you were you were born in Chicago. I was. And, and in eighty five. In eighty five, and got yeah. bitten by you know the uh, the bug of music. So so how did that happen? Uh, what well, was Elvis and um, the the movie The Blues Brothers when I was like three four years old and um, mm. which we could talk a lot about um, in that regard because like the Blues Brother movie. Obviously, the insane music that's in that thing. Uh, John Lee Hooker and basically Muddy Waters Band, uh, Aretha Franklin, James Brown. Um, but, the, you know, the band itself, you know, Stat, you know, Cropper and Dunn from Stax and Matt Murphy uh, from Chess in Chicago. Um, and then that great horn section, um, which essentially was the Saturday Night Live horn section. Right. Um, was, you know, you know, when you're that young, I mean, you know, you just kind of, you know, you play dress up or you play with your, you know, whatever, you know, you do things that little kids do. And so like that movie was hugely, I was just obsessed with it. And it was a great introduction to some of the great American music that yeah. then I, from like going to the Chicago public library, which I lived right near and, um, I've always just been an insane researcher, you know, much like you, because Zach and I, Zach actually is my oldest friend, folks. Like, we've known each other longer than, I mean, you know, what, more than 10 years, probably closer yeah. to 13 or 14 years at this point. And Zach's, not only was he the best man at my wedding, but he uh, he's the reason I moved to Nashville. So anyway, so we both have a common love part part of part of what bonded us early on is the researching element of things yeah. and um so as a result of all that i became exposed to lots and lots of other music be just because of that movie and then seeing elvis on television was a huge thing you know uh yeah. which led to you know uh you know, the first phase of my career, as it were. Because <laughs> when I was a little kid, when I was a little kid, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to beat you because he knows all my secrets. So when I was a little kid, like five, six, seven, eight years old, I used to do like an Elvis thing. I used to do an Elvis show where I'd like do my hair up, which is not that different from the way it is now. Um, but, um, you know, sideburns have remained all these years. But uh, that was like the first performing I ever did was doing Elvis songs like, as Elvis, like a little Elvis thing, um, with my guitar and, um, you know, and you know, the cool thing about that, uh, in regards to exposure to those main things that made me fall in love with music is, you know, what a, I couldn't have asked for a better portal into great music because, you know, that's kind of starting at a good central point. Like whether you're talking about Elvis and like rock and roll, because you know, then of course, getting into Elvis Presley, then you you're exposed to to Little Richard and Fats Domino and Chuck Berry and and Bill Haley and the Comets and Gene Vincent and you know all of the great rock music, the real rock and roll. And then like you know, 
a year or two later when I was exposed to the Beatles, then it's like, it's just this perfect lineage where it all made more sense to me because it, I kind of learned it in chronological order, which is strange, you know? Yeah. Cause I, I really didn't contemporary influence like, cause there was great music happening when I like, cause I'm talking about like very late eighties and early nineties, you know, there was really good music being made at that time, you know, like the, you know, Nirvana, you know, like that whole movement, if you will, the grunge movement of the nineties. And then like the, as we were just talking off camera, like the kind of singer songwriter, uh, you know, music from the nineties, you know, like I didn't become as exposed to that till a little later, you know, yeah. cause I was so into older music, but yeah. that's what it was. You know, that was the initial, you know, yeah. love was very, you know, was, was black American music, you know, soul music and roots music, blues music because of that blues brother vein, which exposed me to a bunch. And then Elvis Presley, you know, yeah. so what, what's not to like, as what's we say. What's not to like. Yeah. So, so you started, you know, really getting into playing the guitar mm. and then, and then your parents ended up moving to Phoenix. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, we, so, yeah. Go ahead. Well, no, I mean, we were, we were, uh, um, we relocated when I was, you know, barely a teenager and I, you know, like when I was really young, I would get up and play at parties and stuff and do the Elvis thing, which also would include like Buddy Holly and, yeah. you know, like, um, cause I just loved fifties music as a kid. Um, and so as I got a little older and became a little bit better of a guitarist, because I got my first guitar right before I turned five years old. and um, But I took it really serious right from the get-go. I mean, I was really, really, still to this day, obsessive about when I'm into something. I'm just tunnel-visioned, and it's just, you know, rereading books 20 times and listening to records 40 million times and all this kind of stuff. It's just, you know, and you're like, again, like, you know, Zach is like that, too, you know, so... And I think a lot of musicians are. I think that's kind of a normal, at least friends of mine that are in the music business. It's, you know, you got their music fans, you know, yeah. and the ones that aren't are, are jive, you yeah. know, generally. But I, I think, you know, you know, so many times people think that somebody was just, you know, they were just born with this <laughs> great talent. But the thing that they don't realize is that the, the really great players are obsessed with it. Oh yeah, and and so they they go down the rabbit hole and they they do the research. They find the records and then they spend the time you know woodshedding it. And even if it's not playing something note for note, it's really absorbing the style and being able to take it and do something else with it. Right. Hopefully, so, but yeah. no, that's exactly right. You yeah. know, and I mean, you know, I think as Zach would agree with me. You know the the undisputed champion of guitarists in our opinion, I think both would be Jack Pearson. Yeah. And, you know, Jack is a very, very close friend of mine. And, and, uh, you know, we many times will spend, you know, the whole evening on the phone together, you know, cause we're both, we're both insomniacs kind of. So it's like, you know, two o'clock in the morning till five in the morning phone calls are not uncommon for he and I to have with one another. But he'll be sitting there, we'll be talking on the phone and he'll be sitting there practicing, yeah. which, you know, it's like, I do think Jack is kind of touched by the hand of God or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. 
Um, but you know, Jack, even now, like, I mean, it's, you know, I get off the phone talking to him and I'm like, I better go practice, you know, cause he takes it that even now, you know, yeah. and that is, it's important, you know, that immersion. Yeah. Um, so get, getting back to the timeline. Yeah. So you, you moved to Phoenix. We moved to Phoenix. Yeah. yeah. And you, and you played, you know, in, in some bands and you, mm. by, the, by that time you were playing more, you know, kind of blues rock. Yeah. And, you know. After you know touring the U.S. for a while, mm. you kind of uh, decided that you wanted to to move on to something else. I did, and and uh, and you were you know, a what, part of that. What, yeah, what happened from there? <laughs> well, uh, well, you and I had a very important phone call. Actually, I know you weren't leading, you, you yeah. weren't baiting me, but it, yeah. the honest thing is, you know, I I knew that I had to move somewhere where something was going to potentially happen and that was you know that unfortunately you know it's like that's just not gonna happen if you're not in like new york or los angeles or here in nashville or maybe austin texas and i don't know maybe chicago maybe i don't know which you know where i'm from but you know may, maybe but you know really you know and i realize that but you know when you're young when you're young and you know, you got no money and all that kind of stuff. It's not really what you want to hear because <laughs> yeah. it's hard, you know, or, or it's hard if you don't live near one of those places. Yeah. You know, if you're lucky enough to kind of live a couple hundred miles from one, maybe it's not as tough. But, yeah. you know, but yeah, so I realized that. And you, you know, you we had a very faithful conversation where you essentially were like, well, you're either going to do it or you're not. And if you're going to do it, you need to do it. Yeah. And so, you know, that was one of the best bits of advice I was ever given and so I moved here and and, and that was that but was did did you live happily ever after oh, no, you moved no. here tell, no not at tell, all why don't you tell a little bit about the struggles well, that you faced yeah. well you know what since because I've I've told parts of the story but because you know you and I are here we might as well tell most of it because okay. it's actually I think more interesting uh, in context because when I first moved here I had a manager relatively quickly. I'm sure you'll remember. And it was in my mind to kind of like, well, you know, let me try and do a country artist thing. Yeah. Because essentially, like, I'd done all those years of playing in bars and playing cover music and playing, you know, um, rock music, you know, blues music, whatever. And, um, And I always like country music, you know, the thing that you and I love, you know, the kind of cosmic country stuff of the 60s and 70s, um, you know, uh, was a big influence on me and you. And um, so, you know, quickly kind of like made, got to town, we made, and Zach played on this actually, that record that never came out and will never come out. It's buried in my yard somewhere. But uh, not because of your input, but uh, but no, but we made a record relatively quickly. And that's how I met Dave Rowe, uh, because Dave Rowe, the bass player, played on that, which plays a part in the later part of the story. That's how I met Dave. And you played on it. And uh, our good buddy Randall played on it from Brad Paisley's group. And um, and we did it with Ferg, Dave Ferguson, the famous engineer. And so right out of the gate, it was like meeting all these people that would have important, you know, parts of my story later. 
right out of the gate. But we made this record, which wasn't that good because I was nowhere near ready to be an artist or make a record yet. I thought I was. I thought I was going to completely change this town, you know, which is I think you kind of need that kind of blind arrogance, I guess, to, to, to have the guts to kind of move to a place. But, but very quickly, you, you understand how unspecial you are even if you are even special in a little bit, you rel- you learn relatively quickly. When you go to a place that has a huge talent pool that's world-class, you you very quickly go, oh, okay, well, no, I'm way off mark here. So anyway, we made that record, tried to get a record deal, didn't get one, and um, met a, but through that process, met an individual who played a, another really important part in my life later, Paul Worley, is a very famous producer in town because Paul, at the time, was head of A&R for Warner Brothers here. And he was very supportive right away. Didn't end up signing to Warner Brothers, thank God, actually, in the end, because that would have been a very different scenario in the end. But got Paul as a friend. You know, so, you know, the thing that we talked about before we started talking is, like, there's all these things that happen that you don't think that, that maybe at the time you're like, man, I wish this, I want this to go the way I want it to go. And then it inevitably doesn't usually, but you meet these people that factor really important. And so it's like keeping, keeping on the path and, uh, and being nice to everybody and not being a jerk really kind of helps in the long run because it's all about relationships, you know? Absolutely. So, Got through all that and ended up basically, you know, completely broke and no record deal, nothing to show for it and really nowhere to turn. And, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the next chapter that happened was, you know, essentially I was, I was out of money and behind on rent and was about to get thrown out of this place. I was renting over by the fairgrounds and I called my parents for help and, and, uh, and they told me to go to hell and, uh, which is actually the best thing they ever did for me as parents, because had they, because had they bailed me out, like many parents probably would or do, um, this next thing wouldn't have happened to me. And at the time I was devastated because I literally was like, man, I'm going to be homeless. I don't know what I'm going to do. I mean, you know, I would have gotten a job or something, I guess, but the point, and and at the moment it's like, oh my God, you know, what am I going to do? No one's going to bail me out. No one, no. And, um, and that was a blessing. Yeah, it was. And so, you know, feeling sorry for myself, you know, people, I think misconstrue the story as like, oh my gosh, you know, but it was me being dramatic, which I which I have a flair for at times, I'll, I'll admit, uh, um, and uh, just ask my wife. But, um, you know, I, I had that, at the time all this was going on, I still have them, but I had these two rhinestone suits that um, Manuel graciously let me have, the famous rodeo tailor who, like, did Graham Parsons' suit and stuff. It was a really great story where, you know, he, he, when I moved to town, was one of the, those people I met. And, uh, you know, he knew that I was trying to get a record deal and all this stuff. And I, you know, I was hanging out with him, going to his shop and hanging out with him back when his shop was on Broadway next to Nashville, next to Nashville, rather, uh, which our town keeps changing. So that's just weird that that's anyway, I would go and hang there. And, um, and he said to me once, 
I've never told this story. This is a good story. He was, um, he, I was hanging in there and he knew that I was, had all these showcases coming up, you know, and he was like, I hope you do well. You know, he was a very charismatic man. And, uh, and, uh, I said, yeah, you know, I'd really like to have something, you know, a shirt or, or something. And he says, you give me what you can give me, you know, and, uh, and I'll take care of you, you know? And so, I'm not going to say how much I gave him, but it wasn't that much. I mean, it, at the time, it was all the money in the world to me. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't that much. And he made me two suits, like two full suits, a purple one and that maroon one. And, man, I, wore, I didn't have anything at that time. I, had a ba- I literally had a trash bag of clothes, a blow-up bed, two guitars, and, and then an amplifier. And I had a television and my records and stuff like that. That was all I owned and my car, my crappy car that I moved here with. But those suits, man, I'd hang those up and I'd look at those suits every night. And I just, it was like that thing of like, it's going to work. It's, it's in the end, it's going to work. Cause why would I have these hanging there? This is amazing, you know? And so I'll always be really indebted to Manuel because he was, you know, that meant a lot to me at that time and still does. And I, and I want to, the rest of it we'll save for another time. Cause there's, there's some other stories about those suits, but whatever. I wore them all the time because I was proud of those darn suits. Yeah. Anyway, so I put one of those suits on. The reason I say that is because I put one of those suits on to go play on the street corner. Because <laughs> yeah. I because two things. One, I wore them all the time. Yeah. I mean, I wore them every. I was in the grocery store in them, sons of bitches, and it yeah. was you know, and I didn't care if people looked at me weird. I was proud. I was wearing yeah. a Manuel suit, and um, and also I figured I might make more tips if I wore them. <laughs> so I put the cowboy suit on. And I went down to Broadway um, with my with my acoustic guitar, and uh, and I stood there and I played for you know a couple hours. And again, this was because you had you had you had you had no money, and so you decided that you were going to go play for tips on Broadway in your full Manuel suit, <laughs> and you had a, a, a Martin that you had uh, bedazzled. Right, so, yes. I forgot about that. Yes. yes, I had a Martin at the time. Uh, that yeah, I took rhinestones and I like did the whole trim. Yes. And I did the pick guard and I did I think yeah. the bridge and all this stuff. Yeah, I yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so and so you were playing and somebody happened to walk along. Yeah. Dave Rowe walked by, who had played on that record that I was trying to get a record deal with. So he knew me. Yeah. And Dave was like, What the hell are you doing down here? You know? Because at the time, and he may still be down there, there was this guy called Mandolin Mike who always used to play on the street corner right about where I was. And um, and 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 so, any, I don't know, I, that just popped in my head. So there's people that would that would busk down there daily, as right. it were, you know, and, and might still do. I don't know. It's been a long time since I've been down there. But, um, yeah, he walked by and said, what the hell are you doing? And, you know... This is the part of the story I have told a lot because it's important and it was important to me in that I had a decision to make. And the decision was, here's this musician who's a professional musician, played with Johnny Cash, Dwight Yoakam, somebody that I, as a newcomer to town, wanted to impress, wanted to think good of me, wanted, you know, all these things that run through your mind. And so it's like the choice was, do I play it off and be proud and be like, oh, Dave, I'm just kidding. I'm just, you know, it's a joke or something like that. Or do I actually like tell him like why I'm there and 
and be humble. And I was so distraught that the pride and proud side of me, you know, like it just was, but I remember distinctly that kind of like bouncing ball for a moment. And then I just went, man, I'm, I'm screwed. I'm getting kicked out of my place. I got no money and I don't know what I'm going to do. And out of sympathy, I'm sure just sympathy alone, (laughs) you know, Dave, uh, said, well, man, like, well, I'm walking on my gig with Don Kelly. Why don't you follow me in and I'll introduce you to Don? Because because uh, Guthrie's kind of, at the time, Guthrie Trapp uh, was the guitarist. And Guthrie was kind of in and out, you know, and was kind of on his way out of the band. And um, and so, you know, that this is, again, where the story can get really long. But, you know, essentially what ended up happening is, you know, I ended up auditioning um, as a result of it as a result of that initial meeting and Dave essentially kind of working on Don for, I can't remember. It was, it was, it was maybe a week or two before Don finally relented and let me audition. But it was that initial, because that's the thing that I can't quite remember because my wife who I had just met, she remembers us going down there just after that. And like, you know what? No, no, it was. It was like a week later that I finally did because that was a whole nother situation. It's funny how memory plays tricks on you. But essentially, like I, once I met Don, I was on that. Like yeah. things I probably shouldn't say. You know, yeah. it was, it was, it was because uh, um, I saw it as an opportunity and a way out that could, that could work. And it was all I had to go on. So I, I focused on it really, really hard. And then, you know, he, he let me come back and sit in and then he started using me. So what were you doing once you started focusing on, on getting the gig playing with Don Kelly? Uh, Did you start woodshedding? Oh yeah. Like you wouldn't believe. yeah. Yeah. Harder than ever in my life. And since. Yeah. Because my life depended on it. Yeah. And it's amazing how that'll make you, um, you know, whether you're an athlete, whether you're a writer, whether, you know, whatever is whenever life depends on it. And so that's the thing where it's like, you know, unless you're in a, unless you're put in a position where your life depends on something, I don't think you'll ever get to the other side of something because you have to be, I don't at all believe in the sentiment that like, you know, art comes from pain. It can come from pain, but it definitely comes from discomfort you know, I don't think you can be comfortable and be artistic or yeah. make advancements in artistry. But that goes along with, you know, life in general. I think that, you know, the greatest, you know, if a person truly grows and evolves, I think, you know, it's through uncomfortable moments that many times can be painful. And that definitely was painful for me. But it, but it was great because it forces you to get your shit together, yeah. which you need to. <laughs> Most do. <laughs> so you were. So you started playing with Don. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, you, you went from kind of being, you know, artist, you know, uh-huh. guy trying to get a deal. All yeah. of a sudden, you were four nights a week, four hours a night. Mm-hmm. You were you were on display mm-hmm. because I mean, it's kind of the Don Kelly gig is is a guitar player gig, yeah. and it's all about you know playing long hot guitar solos four hours a night. Yeah. So on and on and on. 
Yeah. And it's an amazing, amazing, amazing experience. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't trade that for anything, you know, because it was, it was where I learned, you know, whatever I thought of myself as a musician, you know, like writer, singer, all these other things are kind of over here, but like just focusing as a musician, you know, that's what made me a musician, that, that thing, because yeah. it was, it's a pressure cooker. It's, yeah. it's, uh, you, you know, I'd never played that style of music really, you know, because like what you and I were doing when like I was trying to be an artist was more along the lines of like what, like Marty Stewart or Pete Anderson would do, which is still what I think is great and what I love. But yeah. what I mean by that is it's like simple. Yeah. Whereas with Don, you know, it's that ridiculous, you know, not only speed, but just navigation of a really, really difficult type of style to wrap your head around. And I had no time. I mean, I had no time to develop it. I had, I developed it on stage, you know, which is the, the notion that most people, I don't think they kind of, when I say that they hear me, but they don't really kind of, they can't internalize that because I think it's so, it's such an abstract concept, but dude, you know, any great, um, any heroes of mine that I really, really look up to, it's similar because that is, it's where you learn, you learn in front of people. Mm-hmm. whether they're paying attention or not like it's it's it, that almost has nothing to do with it it can just be two people it can be a bartender and some drunk but it's like it changes the molecular structure of what you're doing if there's people that are present when you're doing something yeah. and um and yeah you do that thousands of times which i did you know with them with that band in particular i mean you know i was there for you know nearly six years and there was a lot of those weeks where I would play Sunday too, you know, because I would, you know, I mean, I never subbed out with that band. I was never sick. I played sick because I wanted to, I wanted to be there every time. Like I, you know, um, I rarely, I can count on one hand the times I missed in those six years, including then when Don would need, need me on Sunday and I'd be like, I'll be there. I'll see you, you know? So, I mean, you know, that equates to, you know, something ridiculous, you know, like 1,200 or 1,300 gigs alone, you know, not counting like all the sessions and all the other stuff too. I mean, but that's, you know, that's the common thing. It's the 10,000 hour thing. And there's no way around that. And not, you know, not saying that, you know, taking me out of the equation, you know, that's the lasting sentiment that I think is important because everybody no matter how old they are, but especially if they're young, nobody wants to believe, I certainly didn't, didn't want to believe that I'd have to work that hard. Mm-hmm. You want to think that there's a, you win the lottery, you sign that deal, that one person, you know, changes your life and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And in a way that does happen, but not in the way that you think or hope it will. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more subtle. And there's no way around the work, at least the people that I think are, you know, and I don't mean to sound, uh, I I don't want to sound like uh, pompous or something about this, but it's like, to me, the ones that are truly making music that are making a difference because they're truly able to emote and convey something that has meaning and depth 
there's no way to get to that without the work. You know, I think that you can get to a point where you can kind of approximate stuff where you can kind of a little bit of this and a little bit of that and, you know, the right clothes and the right Mm -hmm. gear and all this kind of stuff. Like you can, you can kind of assimilate certain things, but it's like, you know, when you're in the press and again, I'm not talking about myself, I'm talking about others that I perceive this. Like when I see someone that truly, usually when I'm seeing somebody play or if I'm like looking at a bandstand of a band or something like that, like usually I'm drawn to like one person or two people or something like that. And like, there's this thing that people call it or something, you know, but it's like, and usually that has to do with what I'm talking about. It's like they have, cause they're expressing something that you can't get the easy way. You get it the hard way, yeah. you know? And that to me, the players that I look up to and have admired my whole life and you as well, I know that's, that's the thing that, I want, if I could be anything, I want to be like, you know, and that's, and that's how you do it. You just do it. (laughs) So while you were working with Don Kelly, Mm -hmm. you also began to do some session work. Yeah. And so you kind of were getting established as a session guy. Yeah. And you were doing the Don Kelly thing. Yeah. And then, you know, sometimes you hope for something, you get it Mm -hmm. and you don't find fulfillment from it. Yeah. Which is another thing that you know, happens and, you know, especially when you're young. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, you know, I, I was with Don, I was very comfortable. I was making good money. And after about a year or a year, a year and a half, maybe like I finally kind of felt as comfortable as I ever felt. I never fully felt comfortable in Don's band, uh, partially for kind of just the nature of the gig itself, but also because, you know, I, I realized that, you know, while I did get better at that particular style, um, it wasn't, I was approaching it from a different standpoint that was, that couldn't by nature be authentic because I didn't grow up cultivating that, you know? And so it's like, in a way it's like, you know, people like Guthrie, people like Red Volkart, you know, predecessors of mine, Brent Mason, predecessors of mine in that band, you know, I never in my mind thought of myself in that genre in anywhere near any of those guys' leagues because to me, they're the ones who do it right. And I just did it the way I did it, which, you know, I, I got good at, but like I never felt quite comfortable, like, and I still don't. Like I, I enjoy it and all that, but like I never, uh, I never felt like I fully belonged, you know? Um, so bearing that in mind, you know, it's, uh, the, the, when the sessions started to come, you know, it was in a certain way, it was, it was easy because all of a sudden I wasn't having to be held to that kind of, uh, uh, that, that kind of watermark, if you will that every night I was with Don, you know? And I don't mean that. And the reason why I'm saying that is because like the studio thing, it starts small. It starts with just demos and going to people's houses or whatever. And so it's like, I felt very low pressure because what was being asked of me as a musician was 
much more utilitarian, much more basic, much more where it's like, oh gosh, you know, I can actually breathe for a second. Yeah. So it's cool because as I crept into the session thing, slowly but surely, and then all of a sudden it happened, you know, in a bigger way where I was working all the time, you know, I was conditioned for like this level of pressure. And so like, I was cool with it and I could deal with it. And I'd be like, yeah, I can do that. And, you know, I felt very comfortable with it for a while. And then obviously, you know, when you start playing on, um, when you start working with big producers and when you start working on actual records and you start, you know, actually getting paid, you know, what, you know, a good master pays and stuff like that, your ego really likes it, you know? So it's like in the beginning, I was like, yeah, like it was, it wasn't, I didn't view it as something that difficult. I felt comfortable relatively quickly and I was like, well, well, this is cool. You know, getting to work with all these players I always dreamed of working with. Um, and I, I existed like that for quite a long time. You know, it, it worked, you know, and that's where Paul Worley comes back into the scenario because Paul, um, uh, I randomly ran into him at a music store and I hadn't seen him since the days of trying to get the deal with Warner Brothers. And he had since left Warner Brothers and, and kind of had this new wave with uh, Laney Annabellum becoming hugely successful and him producing that the, all those records. And he was like, man, it's good to see you and all that. And then running into him and reconnecting, you know, then all of a sudden he hires me to plan a record like a few weeks later. Yeah. And like he was like the first big producer to start to use me. And he used me on some stuff. But just the word of that, like got me all this other work and all this. So, and that's how it, how it works, you know? And it's just, again, like chance, you know, and he had knew he knew that I was playing with Don and, and, you know, he didn't come down or anything, but you know, he knew that and he remembered that he liked my guitar playing and that did that. So anyway, to bring it back, cause I know that, you know, to answer your question, I was really comfortable and happy for a long time and I was making more money than I ever thought I'd ever make in the music business. But, you know, the, 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 for me, um, it wasn't so much of a, man, I need to, I want to be the guy, I want to be the artist or something like that. It really was much more fundamental than that, where it's like, I found myself one day driving home from um, a two o'clock, because they, they do sessions at 10 o'clock, two o'clock, six o'clock, union. And so I, my two o'clock had gotten done early. And so I had time to go home before I went to Roberts because I always used to go to Roberts at like five 30 in the afternoon. And which was perfect because if I, um, you know, if, if, if I was doing a two o'clock, which at that point I was doing a lot of, it was great because I'd get done and I'd, I'd grab my gig bag and run right to Roberts and I'd still be home, you know, before 11 o'clock at night. And, um, so anyway, this two o'clock session had ended early and I was driving home to like hang out for an hour before I had to go to, to Roberts. And I was listening to talk radio in the car. And nothing against talk radio, because I love NPR and all that kind of stuff. But I was sitting at a red light. And uh, and I realized, like, it had been months and months. Like, I couldn't remember the last time I listened to music for pleasure. Wow. And I was 25 when this event occurred. 
And um, and that was really weird for me because I was like, well, you know, I've got this, I'm living in a nice house and, you know, um, I wasn't married at the time, but I, I was living with my, with my, uh, with my, what, who became my wife with our dogs and had this very, this domestic life and, you know, all these grown up things that you want and you hope for, but music had become, uh, a job, you know, and like the desire to look at it from a joyful perspective, from an enjoyment standpoint was just like switched off and had been for a while. Wow. And it scared the living daylights out of me because I went, first of all, I went, I'm way too young for this to be this way. And I was, and I immediately realized that I had to do something about that. And I didn't know what, but I knew something had to change. So, you know, the first step was, you know, I became in love with vinyl again, which Zach and I mirrored each other in that, um, you know, and um, where I started collecting vinyl again and started actually listening to records all the way through like I had always done, <laughs> but mm-hmm. just, and then, you know, I kind of, you know, perspective is an interesting thing because I started finding myself on a daily basis kind of realizing that I was really good within certain aspects of like the session business i was really i was really quick i could read really well and uh i could execute that you know all the things that all the simple little basic things that if you can do them and the opportunities present themselves to you you'll do well in the session world you know but i just was looking at it every day and just going you know i, I if i don't do something now i'll regret it because i'm 25 years old and i'm still still young and also kind of recognize that if I was going to do something about it, it's going to take a hell of a lot of work. And if I didn't start soon, um, I'd never do it. And um, so it just started with, you know, moving into, you know, the formation of my group. It started out with just me um, taking songs I've written because, you know, a lot of the session work that I was doing was like demos for publishing companies. So I met all these great writers and I, you know, I, I ended up writing with, with several of them over time. So it's like, I was always writing because I was always in the back of my mind going, well, you know, that could be another avenue that I would do. Cause I, I, I'd always written songs. And, um, so I was like, well, that could be something else that I do down the road, you know, as well as being a session player or a sideman or something, you know, cause you think all these things, you know, and so I had songs I'd written and all that, but I just started focusing on that. And there was, uh, two buddies of mine at the time, well, they're still good friends of mine that I would work with a lot. One of them was, uh, my buddy, Tim Marks, who is uh, a very notable session bass player here in town and, um, and, uh, still a really good buddy. And my other friend, John Radford, who's a marvelous drummer, who actually had an amazing band of his own called Luella and the Sun a couple of years ago. Um, so anyway, I just started going and hanging out with them just to jam, just to have fun. And uh, that eventually kind of grew into the formulation of, you know, because, you know, how people here in town, a lot of time, a lot of times, you know, players as it were 
in quotations, I don't consider myself, you know, there's, there's real players. I was, I was, I was a third, third or quarter of that at best in my day, but you know, you go to Douglas corner or go to third and Lindsley or whatever. And you see these amazing kind of put together bands of, of sidemen that get together and have fun because mm-hmm. you do, you need a release. If you're a sideman or a session player, you need to have some artistic release, you know? And so I did some of those with Tim and John and, my buddy Steve Henson, I remember, and uh, uh, and uh, and a bunch of other guys were, you know, but didn't really amount to much. And then I met my bandmates. I met, uh, you know, uh, who I'm still in the group with, Adam Abershoff, the drummer, and uh, the original bassist in the band, Frank uh, Swart, um, who at the time he was playing with John Hyatt and uh, Patty Griffin and all that, and. Uh, they had had an improvisational trio with Kenny Vaughn, who's another great guitarist here, yeah. called Funk Wrench. And I was a huge Funk Wrench fan. And I'd always wanted to play with uh, Frank and Adam, but lacked the, uh, lacked the uh, uh, confidence, I guess, to ask him. So eventually Frank asked me, you know, and then we got together and jammed and immediately I was like, okay, well, this is, this is what I'm going to do. And that was the formation of the group, you know, and five, almost six years later, you know, Adam and I still remain and Alaj um, Shapiro joined the group uh, eventually. And um, and, you know, the rest is a whole nother very long story. But that's how the that's how the group formed. And I just knew immediately I knew immediately that this is what I was going to do. Yeah. And that was scary. <laughs> Well, let's take a break there. Mm-hmm. Let's come back and let's talk more about Simon. Sounds good. This has been an audio presentation by True Tone, TrueTone.com. So, you you were born in Chicago. I was in 1941. 1941, the uh-huh. dirty streets of Chicago, mm-hmm. and you you came you know playing acoustic blues, and then you switched to electric blues <laughs> with muddy water. Okay. Yeah. Let's, no. We'd go down to Peppers, yeah, and we were all hanging out at the University of Illinois. And uh, there was this guy, man, Butterfield was a bad dude. Butterf- man. Okay. Sorry, anyway. <laughs> let's, tell, let's, let's tell the real story. Yeah, let's tell the real story. <laughs> 